Perhaps you've had a big assignment coming up, and your teacher comes up to you and asks you, do you need some help? And you say, no, I'm fine. Even though the truth is you haven't even looked at the assignment yet. And so you go and look at the assignment and you realize you're in a world of suffering. (laughs) Or perhaps you've just started a new job or a new responsibility and you're actually struggling and you're overwhelmed. But you don't want to tell people around you because you're scared that you're going to look weak or not capable. And so what do you do? You don't ask for help. And you just continue to struggle. Or perhaps it's something spiritual. Maybe you're struggling with your Bible reading or with a particular sin in your life. And so when a brother or a sister approaches you and asks you, do you need some prayer or can I help you? You don't want to seem weak. And so you say you're fine and you put on a brave smile. Brothers and sisters, why do we struggle to ask for help? What is it about us and wanting to look strong and independent and able that we don't allow others around us the opportunity to help us in our suffering? And how often is it that in our lack of openness, it actually results in even more suffering? And though we can often do that with God, sorry, with people, How often do we do that with God? How often do we face a difficulty or a circumstance and we fail to approach God about it and instead try and do it in our own strength? Well, tonight we're going to be looking at the book of Joshua, chapter 9 tonight, and we're going to look at how the Israelites struggled to come to God in their circumstances. In fact, we're going to learn that just like Joshua and the Israelites, we too can be deceived and fail to come to God in prayer, instead relying on our own strength rather than His. So we all desire independence, and we forget that our battles and our victories belong to our all-powerful, all-sovereign God, not to us. Before we begin, though, let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for you, for who you are, and Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity that we can meet tonight, and I pray, Lord, that as we open your word tonight, Lord, that you will speak to us, that you will encourage us, that you will convict us of the areas that we need convicting, that, Lord, you will point us to you, that we can be more like you and live lives worthy of your name. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. Well, good evening, everyone. If you don't know me, my name is Vineeth Roy. I'm one of the coordinators here at at City Reach, and we've just started a new series in the book of Joshua. So Tony opened the word for us last week in Joshua chapter 5. Now, just for some context, at the end of Deuteronomy, or just before Joshua, the Israelites have just entered into the promised land. Uh, Moses has just passed away, and so Joshua has become the leader of the Israelites. And they've already had two major victories. So we heard last week about the Battle of Jericho and how God revealed his faithfulness to them. And we've just skipped over the Battle of Ai, which actually reveals the unfaithfulness of the Israelites and how after turning to repentance and dealing with their sin, God delivers them victory once again. 
And now we come to Joshua chapter 9. So I want to encourage you, if you don't have your Bibles open, why don't you open them up and join us as we read and study God's Word together. So once again, Joshua chapter 9, read with me from verse 1 and 2. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all across the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua in Israel. So as soon as all the enemies of the Israelites heard about all that God has been doing, they got scared, and they wanted to join together in order to defeat them. But notice in chapter 9 that there's a certain group of these enemies that have their own plan. Instead of joining forces with the others, the Gibeonites plan to deceive the Israelites by instead presenting themselves as distant travelers so that they can avoid being destroyed. So that brings, us, that brings us to the first major part of our narrative tonight, deception. And we learn from this part that we have an enemy that is looking to deceive us. So let's have a closer look at the Israelites' physical enemy, the Gibeonites, and their deception. And the first thing we learn about them is that, is that they are deceptive and crafty. Read with me from verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Jesus had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took out worn-out sacks for their, for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. Now these people were cunning, and they went to great extents in order to portray this false identity. And second, they used lies to mislead the Israelites. They say in both verses 6 and 9 that they come from a distant country when in reality they're actually their new neighbors. Third, they knew exactly the right things to say to lower their guard because they say and they present themselves as servants rather than enemies. Fourthly, the Gibeonites were actually very knowledgeable about God. As they say in verse 9, from a distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. Now the Gibeonites used their, their knowledge of God to continue to lower the Israelites' guard. But finally, notice what the intentions of the Gibeonites were. Unlike the other enemies of Israel who seek to destroy them, the Gibeonites wanted to actually submit to them, submit to their God out of fear. We've already heard about how they want to be servants, 
But look, at, look with me at verse 24. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. So Israel's physical enemy, the Gibeonites, were deceptive, crafty liars who were only just really interested in saving their own skin. Now before we continue, just a side point about Old Testament narratives is that Old Testament narratives aren't about us. So often we can read these narratives and think, oh, this this directly applies to me today. But really, these stories, these historical narratives were written to a different people, to a different time, in a different covenant, under far different circumstances. As Tony said last week, this is actually descriptive, not prescriptive. But you might have noticed that the nature of the Gibeonites gives some shades or glimpses into the nature of our spiritual enemy. If we cast our minds back to Genesis 3, where um, Adam and Eve get convinced by the serpent to eat the one, from the one tree that they weren't allowed to eat from. We learn a lot of things about this enemy as well. Firstly, we, we see that our enemy is also deceptive and crafty. In fact, it says in verse 1 of chapter 3 that he is the most crafty of all wild animals. The serpent also uses lies to mislead us, and he says the right things to get our attention. And the devil uses his knowledge of God and twists it to lower our guard. But the key difference between the Gibeonites and the enemy, uh, um, the devil, is that while the Gibeonites wanted to submit to God, our enemy wants to oppose God and his plan, and he acts to keep us as far away from God as possible. Now, am I saying that the Gibeonites are Satan or Satan's Gibeonites? Of course not. But the shades of the character of the Gibeonites are a bit of a reflection and reveal a a bit about our enemy as well, our spiritual enemy. And just like with the Gibeonites for the Israelites, we too can be deceived by our enemy and allow him to turn our gaze away from God. If we're not careful, we can be like the Israelites who allow the deceptive ways of our enemy to prevent us from coming to God. So I want to ask you tonight, what stops you from coming to God in prayer? What stops you from coming to God in prayer? Because can I suggest something? May I suggest that whatever it is that stops you from coming to God is actually a deception. Whatever it is that is driving you to do life on your own is actually a lie from our enemy to make you believe that you don't need God. So let me ask you once again, what stops you from coming to God in prayer? I've had a conversation with a few of you guys and asked you this question. 
and I've collated some of the most um, popular or most common answers. Maybe you relate to some of these. Maybe you feel like you're too good, that you don't need God. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you feel like you're not good enough to approach God. Maybe you feel like you're too busy. Or maybe you feel like the things in your life are too big for God to handle. Or again, maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you feel like the the things in your life are too small that's not worth God worrying about. Can you relate to these? Or is it something else? What stops you from coming to God in prayer? Because each of these are lies that our enemy uses to deceive us and to prevent us from coming to God. Instead, we need to get rid of these lies and instead be filling ourselves of the truth that God gives us. Because the reality is that no one is too good. In fact, we're all broken and weak on our own. That is why we all need God and his help. If you feel like you're not, too, you're not good enough to come to God, you know what? You're right. You're not. In fact, I was walking through the medical school about two years ago, and there was a girl in my Bible study group, and I just asked her, hey, how's your spiritual life going? And she said, I'm not praying anymore beneath. I asked her why, and she said, well, I've got too many things going on in my life, too many things I need to work on before I can come to him. Do you relate to that? Do you feel like you're not, too, you're not good enough to come to him? Because you're right, but praise God, praise Jesus, that through him, he gives us an opportunity to have a relationship with him anyway. Do you feel like you're too busy? Because I want to encourage you that prayer is actually the, one of the most convenient things you can ever do, right? You can pray whenever you want because God is always with us. And he promises never to leave us or forsake us. And you can pray for however long you want, whether it's 30 minutes or 30 seconds. And you can pray wherever you want, whether it's on your knees in your room or whether it's in your shower or in the car. If you feel like your life is too big for God to handle, I want to encourage you that there's nothing that is too big for God. Nothing in this world is too big for him. And if you feel like God knows, sorry, if if you feel like your prayer points are too small for God to worry about, I want to encourage you that God knows and cares about every detail of your life. And he invites you to come to him with everything. So let me ask you one more time, what stops you from coming to God in prayer? Or maybe a better question is, how are you being deceived? What lies are you believing that are stopping you from coming to God? So coming back to our narrative, the Israelites have a deceptive enemy in their midst, right? And they actually initially respond wisely. Look at the text. They ask questions like, who are you? And are you really who you say you are? But then it goes wrong. Because in their moment of discernment, 
which is wise and is usually a marker of spiritual maturity, they actually bring their suspicions to the wrong source. Instead of coming to God in His wisdom and strength, they rely on their own. And that leads to our second point in our narrative today, which is failure. And we learn from this that we often fail to come to God for help. And just like the first part with deception, we're going to have a look at the Israelites' failure first before we look at ourselves. And so look with me at the crucial verse of this passage, which is verse 14. So the men took some of their provisions, that's the Israelites, but get this, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Now last week we heard from from Tony about a breakthrough, right? In that as the Israelites trusted in God's commands, and as they walked around Jericho a total of 13 times, the walls finally came down and victory was in their hands. But this week, we go from breakthrough to a breakdown in trust and in communication. The Israelites no longer look to God's wisdom. They look to themselves. Now, on the surface, it might just seem like the Israelites are just these silly and gullible people for, for, um, for falling for the deception of the Gibeonites. But actually, the problem is far deeper in that they actually, in making a peace covenant with them, They're actually going against the very commands of God. Deuteronomy 7 verses 1 and 2 says that when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, verse 2, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. So God was clear that when they were to enter the promised land, they were to drive everyone out and to make no covenants. And yet they neglected God's command. They failed to come to him and they relied on their own wisdom and strength. Now, I don't know about what you're thinking, but for me, I'm thinking, what are you doing, Israel? Have you forgotten all that God has done for you in the past? So let me ask you something, church. Even though it was Moses that led the Israelites out of Egypt, who was it that ultimately delivered them out of Egypt? It was God, right? Who was it that sent the ten plagues into Egypt or part of the Red Sea? Or delivered manna from the heavens to sustain them through the wilderness? Who was it that delivered them, uh, delivered them victories over Jericho and Ai? It wasn't the Israelites themselves, it was God. But you see, they've forgotten the key principle learned so far throughout this book of Joshua, as well as basically throughout the whole history, in that the battle actually belongs to God. And the victory comes from his hand. Let me say that again. 
The battle belongs to God, and victory comes from His hand, not our own. And yet, even though He's made that so clear to the Israelites, they still seem to forget this important truth. In fact, it's so ironic that the enemies of the Israelites were more aware of what God had done in the past than the Israelites themselves. See, in verses 1 and 2, each of the enemy kings gathered and were fearful because of what they had heard God had done. And the whole Gibeonite deception was out of fear because of all that God had done. You see, the only the Israelites, God's people, didn't acknowledge God's achievements. So if we go back to what we had just talked about, what was the lie that stopped the Israel um, from coming to God? What was it that deceived them, which prevented them from seeking counsel from God? It wasn't the deceptiveness of the Gibeonites. It was actually the deceit of their own pride. Let me say that again. It wasn't the deceitfulness of the Gibeonites. It was the deceit of their own pride. See, our pride leads us to think that we don't need God, that we've got all the wisdom and the strength that we need. And so you see, our pride hungers for independence. We want our own autonomy. If we go back to Genesis 3, that was what it was all about. Even though the serpent used his deceitful ways, it was really Adam and Eve and their heart for autonomy that led to the fall. So if you look back at the Israelites, they thought they could do it on their own. They trusted their own wisdom and their own judgment. They walked by sight, not by faith. And how often do we do that? The same occurs in the hearts of the Israelites. Instead of giving the glory to God for all the achievements that have been happening, they gave it to themselves. And what caused their pride? Similar to what causes us pride, it was success and achievement. See, the two massive victories that Israel had won over Jericho and over Ai were all due to God's faithfulness and power, and yet they gave all the credit to themselves. And so when they were faced a new kind of battle, instead of looking up, they looked to themselves. I know I do that all the time. If I get a good, good grade at uni or at school, I'm stoked. But how often do I actually come to God and give him thanks for it? If I have a good conversation with a non-Christian at uni, I'm more thinking, yeah, awesome. I took my opportunity and said the right words. Instead of saying, thank you, God, for this opportunity and for giving me the words to say. In fact, many of you know it took me three years to get into medicine. And after the third time, I had almost a perfect ATAR, almost perfect uh, medical exam score, and I just thought, oh, man, I deserve this because I've done so well. And so when I initially didn't get in, I took it out on God because I thought, I've earned this. I deserve this. As though all of my achievements were because of me and not because of God. 
The same occurs in the hearts of the Israelites. So they, they saw the glory of achievement rather than searching for the glory of God. Let me say that again. They replaced the glory of God with the glory of achievement. Now, it's really easy to judge and laugh at the Israelites for their moral and spiritual failures. But really, the Old Testament, or perhaps even the whole Bible, is a mirror that reflects the moral and spiritual failures of our own hearts, of our own lives. See, just like the Israelites, we often fail to come to God for help too, don't we? Or is it just me? So just like the Israelites, where do you fail in your life in coming to God? What decisions in your life have you been failing to come to God with for his guidance and his wisdom? What circumstances can you substitute into verse 14? Perhaps it's your future career. Maybe it's the degree that you want to study at uni. Have you actually sought counsel from the Lord? Maybe it's relationships, your future partner or marriage. Have you actually sought the Lord for his wisdom? Maybe it's the kind of media that we engage with, the music that we listen to, the the TV shows and the movies that we watch. Have we actually sought God's wisdom? Or have we we allowed our society to, to give us lies? Maybe it's the people that we hang out with. Or maybe even the ministry that we want to be a part of. Have we actually sought God's counsel? Or have we just relied on our own strength and our own judgment? So once again, where do you fail in your life to come to God? Because I want to encourage you to don't don't be like the Israelites, who forget God's character and forget God's faithfulness in their life. But to look to Him, to look to His goodness to his faithfulness. I'm standing in a room full of people, I'm sure, who have many stories of God's faithfulness. So you've got a a choice. In your decision-making, are you going to be like the Israelites who turn to their own wisdom and strength? Or are you going to look to God for his guidance? Are you going to be a people who come to God in all things, whether great or small? Now, I know this hasn't been the most encouraging talk so far. We've talked about the Israelites' deception and how we've been deceived. And we've talked about the Israelites' failure and how we fail. And I know for myself and my own heart, I've definitely been convicted and exposed of my own sinfulness and pride. But towards the end of the passage is actually a beautiful image of mercy. And we learn that we have a faithful and merciful God. So afterwards, the Israelites have discovered their enemies, are their true identity, that they've been deceiving and lying to them, but that they've actually made a covenant of peace with them to, make them, to let them live. So they're probably wondering, what do we do? Do we break our covenant and pursue vengeance? Because after all, they've lied to us and they deserve punishment. They deserve death. But no, they don't. Instead, they pursue 
mercy. By staying true to their covenant, letting them live, and even allowing them to have roles within their community. And we need to come back to the fact that these are broken, sinful people. But if they can show mercy and faithfulness, if these sinful people can show that, how much more faithful and merciful is our God to us? Let me say that again. If these sinful, broken people can show mercy and faithfulness to their word, how much more faithful and merciful is our God to us? We, like the Gibeonites, are lying, deceitful people who deserve death and punishment. Yet God, being rich in mercy, allows us to live, and in fact goes above and beyond that, in that he actually rights our wrongs for us through his son Jesus. Because of Jesus, despite all of our many failings, we can always approach God. That he is gracious and merciful and faithful to his promises. What a God we have, amen? That despite our many failings, despite the many times we've been deceived and we lie, that he has a place for us in his home, in heaven, for you and for me. Well, tonight we've heard about the deception of the Israelites and their failure to come to God for wisdom and counsel. And we've also heard about the mercy that was shown to the Gibeonites. We're actually going to end our time tonight in a time of personal reflection, confession, and prayer. I want to encourage you guys to ask the following questions to yourself. Number one, what stops you from coming to God in prayer? What lies are you believing that are stopping you from seeking Him? And secondly, what do you, where do you fail in your life in coming to God? What decisions or circumstances are you keeping from Him, thinking you can do it on your own? And after you've had some time to reflect for yourself, I want to encourage you to come to God in prayer, confessing these things and asking him for his strength and come and receive his love and his mercy and his grace. So I'm going to give you a time now to just sit on your own, in your own space, ask these questions and come to God in prayer.